welcome to creating wealth through passive apartment investing podcast in this show we will discuss about best and worst experiences about passive and active apartment investing and i am your host ramakrishna let's begin the show today's our guest is john blanton from peak capital welcome john hey rama how are you doing looking forward to talking Yeah, thank you. A little bit about John. John is an experienced sales professional and real estate investor. He has spent 10 years supporting enterprise customers in the high-tech sector. He has been investing in real estate for over 5 years both actively and passively. Like many, he started investing in real estate via single unit properties but has since expanded into syndications and multifamily properties. John lives just outside of Raleigh, NC with his wife Jordan and two daughters. With that, John, would you like to add anything to your background? No, I mean, other than that, I just hope I can deliver some value to the audience and uh, and give them some creative ideas to to get more out of their deals. Cool. So, what is your thought process in selecting real estate and multifamily, John? Yeah, I think it all started when my wife and I, you know, we were fortunate to to start to see some good success in our corporate careers. Uh, we're both in sales, and we started having a little bit of excess capital that we could could play around with. and so we started thinking what where are we going to invest this money and i think real estate was kind of the simplest outside the market i just i've never been super competent in the in the stock market and felt that we had money already going that way through 401k's and IRA's and so we're like you know what what else are we going to do with this money and so it took us about a year researching the raleigh market and this is before the market was even very hot i mean you could pick up stuff for i mean i wish i could go back to that day and and buy a lot more than i had at the time but it took us about a year cuz we were targeting that 1% rule and it just it, it even back then this is 2015 even back then it was pretty difficult in the triangle to find that 1% but finally we found a couple condos right downtown near NC State and we just jumped in head first we picked up a couple of those within 15 months and and then boom just like that the market went crazy and so they were already you know 25 30,000 more than what we had paid for them and uh, I naively said hey I'm just going to move on like you know we got to find something else uh, so you know the real reason was we needed an excess place to park capital and then also finding additional w- revenue streams to create cash flow for our family in the case that our commissions diminished or you know even worse we ended up losing our our corporate career awesome and thank you for sharing your journey and so what are your focus markets and what is the reason john Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I feel like my focus continues to change. So, you know, I I think the biggest thing is I didn't initially take enough accountability about handling my investments. I just I had interacted with a couple brokers and agents and was expecting them to do all the heavy lifting for me. Hey, you know, when you got a deal that looks good and makes sense, send it over to me. And I think that that's a real challenge. If you really want to succeed in this field, I think you've got to really be accountable and take the bull by the horns. And so after those few deals that we bought in the in the beginning, we didn't buy anything for a couple for a few years. And finally, we had just been paying down the principal balances of those properties and finally, you know, I was just like I've got to do something else out there. I've got to see what other op- abilities are out there because we just weren't we weren't getting the returns that we wanted and and obviously as you know, as we were paying down the principal balance, 
we weren't really getting a very re good return on the equity that, that we were building up anyways. And so then I looked at private lending and, and I was fortunate enough to get introduced to a very strong flipper. And we did, he did a project. He did an outstanding job. Of course, I was nervous the whole time. I'm like, there's no way he's going to hit his ARV. Like he's getting way too aggressive. It was in uh, Zebulon. So pretty far West in Wake County, but still in Wake County. And, uh, you know, he did an outstanding job. And of course he got higher than uh, what his projected ARV was. And so I made a couple thousand dollars in, in a few months and I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting, but I just wasn't close enough to it. He'd allowed me the chance to, to visit the project and kind of let me in a little bit. But at the end of the day, I was very passive and wasn't doing much on the project. So from there, I said, hey, you know, this flipping thing doesn't sound that hard. Let me try it myself. So I partnered up with a woman that's a general contractor that does quite a few projects down in the Fayetteville area. And uh, the first project came, went off without a hitch. It was great. It was beautiful property. Unbeknownst to me at the time, it was a pretty much an aesthetic flip. There wasn't really anything challenging about that project. You know, and I probably could have even handled that project on my own. It was just kind of lipstick and, and new fixtures and, and it came out beautifully and she did an outstanding job. So then I'm like, this is, this is nice. You know, I just made a couple thousand dollars, um, you know, and since it was a partnership, we split the proceeds. So, and then from there I did a couple more and <laughs> on the back end, we almost lost some money on one of the projects. And I was like, man, this is a lot of risk for, in my mind, not that huge huge of return of, of capital, you know, make, risk a couple, risk a hundred or $150,000 to make a couple thousand dollars. Uh, and that was kind of the biggest eye-opening thing too on the flips was I wasn't making as much money as I had expected. I wasn't making 30 or $40,000 on a deal. Not saying that that's not possible, but just for whatever reason, my aptitude just wasn't there to make that. And uh, later on, I saw data that said uh, the Raleigh-Durham area is among one of the, the highest concentration and growth areas for flips in the entire country and actually among one of the lowest profit margins <laughs> for flips. And so I saw that and I said, you know, okay, well, I'm not going to swim upstream. So from there, started looking at smaller multifamily deals and syndications. And so that's kind of what led me on the path to going down this way, having some avenues that are a little bit more passive and then also the economies of scale so that instead of just losing one tenant and having zero cash flow, you can sustain a five to 15% decrease in occupancy and at least break even. Good. So what's your investment criteria for selecting a deal, John? Yeah. So it depends. I'm a little bit interesting. I know a lot of people say you got to choose active or, or passive. And so I think it's kind of nice to do both. I think for me, if you've got excess capital, you've got to find a place to park it. And so I know some people argue diversification isn't the best, but you know, so I like to be diversified across geographies and then also asset classes. So when I'm looking at a syndication deal, what I'm looking for is at least an 8% cash on cash and double my money in five years at a very minimum. If the deal doesn't do that, then I'm, I'm probably moving on to the next one. But then also I need to make sure that to my understanding that the deal's underwritten conservatively. And I really believe that the metrics and uh, the assumptions that the sponsor is making are in line with what I feel is accurate, either via the market or you know the financial, the greater financial economy moving forward. From an active perspective, right now I'm targeting North Carolina as, as my primary market. I, I think North Carolina is going to continue to see rampant growth over the next, if not you know five to 10 years, if not further out. And so from an active perspective, the market's gotten so competitive here in North Carolina that I'm targeting properties from 10 to 60 doors right now, just because I still feel like there's a little bit of opportunity there running into some of the mom and pops that you can get a little bit more margin on the buy versus all this competition for these hundred plus door properties that, you know, so many are going after in the Southeast. Cool. So how do you source your deals, John? Yeah. So that started off 
of course, I read Joe Fairless's book. It was recommended to me, and, and I, that's an outstanding book. And I learned so much from it and got so much about the industry and, and really got kind of my head thinking about how this is scalable in a business and, and how to kind of start building that business. And so I, I started working on building relationships with brokers. And I na naively thought, hey, I'm a sales guy. I feel like I'm likable enough. So this will be easy. Like I'll just I meet. It's a sales guy talking to another sales guy. This is going to be great. So started reaching out to brokers, started to try to build those relationships. And I just was getting nowhere. They were sending me deals, but they just were nowhere near something that I could even consider investing in or, or looking to partner or raise capital on. And so one day I just said, hey, to one of the guys, younger guy, I'm just like, hey man, like, what's the deal? Like, just be blunt with me. Why am I so far behind on any of these deals you send me? And he's like, well, you know, all the guys I'm working with have proven track record with us. They've closed on deals before and performed. They are underwriting extremely aggressively and they're leveraging long-term interest only. And so then it kind of hit me. I was like, whoa, like as a newbie trying to compete in the space, they're making a lot of assumptions that are probably a little bit too aggressive for me to feel comfortable taking on investor capital to, to do some of these deals. So from there, threw on the sales guy hat and said, hey, how can I be creative to, to increase deal flow and get out there? And so I started looking at list source and other avenues to, to find databases of properties. And from there with my team, just started reaching out to, to owners directly to try to source deals that way. And so I think that's been my competitive advantage to this point is the ability to reach owners directly. And a lot of these owners at times, they don't want to market the property through a broker because there's a lot of work that needs to be done on their side. So if it's turnkey and if it's in pristine condition, it makes no sense for them not to list with a broker. But if it needs work or if they're tired and it's been a thorn in their side and you can take this situation off their hands and solve a problem for them. That's the type of person that I'm looking for. So it's a win-win scenario. They do minimal effort. They get the, the highest proceeds they can. And obviously I get a property at a price that, that actually pencils out and makes sense for me and, and my investors. Cool. So would you share your process for sourcing off-market deals, John? Yeah, as I mentioned, so I, you know, list source is an area that I've pulled data from before. Reonomy is one that I use as well. So I just go in and I try to look at different filters and things within those parameters. Unit size, uh, I've learned a lot about how different municipalities and counties, you know, describe buildings. Some of them are by unit count, some of them are by square footage, some of them are on different plots. So it's kind of interesting, you know, actually a property that we're closing on now in, in Greensboro, I almost passed it by because the, the square footage was only of one of the two buildings. So there's actually two buildings. And so I saw the square footage of the building. And I'm like, well, that's too small. I don't want to pursue that one. And then I dug in a little bit deeper and I was like, oh, well, I guess for whatever reason, per the Guilford County website tax assessor, they're only counting the square footage from one building. And so I think there's just a lot of avenues out there that you can be creative to try to get deal flow. And it's not easy. <laughs> you know, this has taken a long time. We've made, you know, hundreds, thousands of calls. Again, you know, these people are getting bombarded by brokers. They're getting bombarded by other people direct to seller. It's not a simple process, but uh, we found the most success with cold calling. Uh, more than anything, you know, I, I, we've tried mailers, we've tried emailing, texting, but you know, we, we found that cold calling and just getting somebody on the phone and being able to have a conversation with them has been one of the best ways to build rapport quickly, understand their willingness to sell. So if we, you know, if we speak to a seller and they're, you can tell they're pretty competent, they understand the market. They're saying, Hey, I just got it appraised and it was this, or, or, Hey, you know, I know that this property is probably worth XYZ if I were to list it with a broker. Pretty quickly, I know that's probably not a seller that I'm going to be able to find a good deal with. And so one of the ways that I've kind of turned the broker relationship on its head 
is if I talk to a seller and they're, if I or someone on my team talk to a seller and there's, and they're wanting a market rate for the property, I can turn that over to a broker and say, hey, here's a lead. Obviously, that's a lot of money out of my pocket. I could try to assign the deal or whatever. But with these commercial deals, there's a lot more wrinkles than just, you know, a, a wholesale $150,000, $200,000 deal, right? If you're talking about a million, $2 million deal, assigning the contract can be difficult. The lenders could have challenges with that. So I've just looked at it as, hey, if I can refer this opportunity to a broker, help them put a little bit of cash in their pocket, of course, they're going to look to me positively moving forward. And, and, and that's worked out well. I've been able to refer a couple opportunities to some brokers here in North Carolina and and um, you know now they're calling me <laughs> asking for leads. So it's kind of it's funny. Before I couldn't get the time of day from them, and now they're knocking on my door saying, "Hey man, you know we're pretty slow right now because of COVID. And uh, you know what are you working on? Is there anything that we can help you with?" So it's kind of funny. It obviously definitely makes me feel that that the efforts that we're making are are fruitful. Cool. And thanks for sharing those details. And did you face any challenges sourcing off market deals, and how did you overcome them, John? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm sure you get just as many unsolicited phone calls and, and I do at my properties that I own now. So depends on the time of day. It depends on the person's attitude. It depends on the type of day the person is having. I mean, I've been cussed out. I've been yelled at. I've been called crazy, you know, so it's really just been across the board as far as the the responses from the sellers. So, you know, just like anything, there's always challenges. Uh, I think one of the biggest things that I faced was not just us from the initial contact, right? That's if you get somebody on the phone and you can have the conversation with them, that's one thing, engage interest. I think the biggest challenge is getting to the actual signing of the contract because that's when it gets real. And so me or anybody on my team, we can talk to the sellers as much as we want but and, and get a commitment from them. But until they sign on the dotted line, it's all conjecture. And so I think that's one thing is you've really got to have people in your court be it attorneys, mentors, advisors that are really helping you through that contract process. If you're not a broker yourself, or if you don't have that understanding of contracts, because that's an area that I've struggled with and, and I've had deals fall through because of that, because I wasn't as competent and, and moving forward now that won't be a concern, but I would say just make sure that every step of the process, you're working with somebody that has more knowledge base than you do about that. Because nowadays, people know how valuable these apartment buildings are. And if you're calling somebody out of the blue and asking them to sell it to you, more likely than not, they know you're trying to get it at a pretty steep discount. And so I think that's the challenge is getting somebody on the phone and building that rapport enough to the point that they're willing to even talk price and give you a chance at trying to buy it from them. Cool. And thanks for sharing that. Uh, would you share any of your best and worst apartment investing experience so far? Yeah. So from the best perspective, you know, so far so good, I guess I'll kind of give one on each side, active and passive. So I, I definitely was a little bit overly aggressive initially in investing in these deals, probably back to the sales guy thing. You know, someone puts a deal in front of me and I just feel like I have to have to close the deal, but I was fortunate enough to work with some pretty competent sponsors that have a three property portfolio down in Huntsville, Alabama. And so that one's pretty exciting. All three properties have been appraised for at least a million dollars over purchase, if not a million and half to 2 million. So that's pretty exciting on the front end. The occupancy of those buildings has remained very strong, even through all the challenges that we're facing in COVID. So 
you know, we'll see what the future holds. I'm not naive to think that there could be some bumps in the road, but so far that's been great. On the active side, excited to to announce that we are closing on a property coming up in Greensboro. I feel like we're picking it up at a very competitive price per door. We're able to negotiate some aggressive terms with this with uh, with the lender and be able to fund the entirety of the construction costs and hopefully be able to refinance that property out, taking out all of our capital and construction costs within the next 18 to 24 months, kind of regardless of which way the market goes. So that's pretty exciting. It'll really be contingent on how strong the market is when we look to refinance about how awesome an opportunity it is. But at this point, we'll be pretty disappointed if we're not able to at least pull out all the capital that's been invested in the deal. So so that's the stuff that excites me is, you know, we're kind of burring a multifamily property and, you know, then we can just let it cash flow long term and take that capital and put it into another investment. From the worst perspective, back to that point earlier about making sure that your contracts or, you know, your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted. We did have a project earlier this year in Winston-Salem, smaller deal, 20 unit deal, and super excited. The The seller was an attorney from originally from North Carolina, went to school, him and his wife went to school in Chapel Hill and now living down in Florida, down in Florida. And so, you know, it just, it seemed from the beginning that he didn't really care too much about the property. You know, I was asking him questions and he said, ah, you know, there's not, he didn't know a lot of the answers. Right. And so then I was talking to the property manager and getting more details. And so it, it really, at the time, it seemed like, Hey, this guy just doesn't care. He just wants this off his hands. And so kept referring back to this number, this number that he wanted for the property. And, you know, I think it was probably his purchase price plus whatever he had invested into it. So he kind of broke even on the exit. And he had bought him and a couple of family members had bought the property 15 years ago. They live in Florida now. So it seemed like it just was kind of a serendipitous opportunity. And so I was super excited, sent him the contract. I had signed it. And uh, he was like, Hey, I'm, I'm working with my attorney to drop these documents. I had negotiated aggressive owner financing terms. I was only going to have to put down 20%. He was going to do interest only for the first 24 to 36 months. He had relented on the price. $20,000. And I was just so tickled. Of course, I was bragging to my buddies and, and my friends and my family and thought about, oh my gosh, I just got this outstanding deal. I was able to negotiate these outstanding terms. The seller doesn't really know what's going on. You know, he's just so done with this property. He's ready to move on. And so, you know, I didn't want to mess it up. So I knew that he hadn't signed the contract and returned it, but I was like, you know, I'll just, he's an attorney. I'll take his word for it. He's just working through the details of, of this deed of trust. And it's a little bit more complex because he's doing owner financing. So get the inspection, walk through the units. The units are in really good shape. They They've done a great job. Nice LVP flooring. Cabinets are in good shape. Appliances look to be overall in good shape. Of course, there's some exterior CapEx work that needs to be done, but nothing extreme. And especially at the price per unit, we were looking to pick it up at. And so go back to them and say, hey, you know, we did the inspection. We definitely want to move forward with the project, but that we're going to need, you know, X, Y, and Z covered as well. And he's like, well, that's way too much. And so I'm like, okay, well, we'll just, you know, we went back and forth and we ended up saying, hey, we'll just close at the price that that you want. And then he had gone dark for about a week or a couple couple days. And I was starting to get a little bit nervous because in the back of my mind, I was saying, Hey, like he still has never returned that signed contract back. Like this is getting, you know, nerve wracking. And finally he just one day sends me a note says, Hey, we're passing on the deal. And my heart just sank. I was just like, what do you mean you're passing on the deal? We've come to terms. We've agreed upon it. We were on a conference call with you and some other family members. They agreed to the terms as well. What do you mean you're passing on it? He's like, oh, we just, we'd rather do something else. We got an LOI from the the husband of the property manager, <laughs> you know, not just some other random unsolicited offer, but an LOI from the property manager's husband. It's like, okay, well, so then obviously my spidey senses were like, well, that's weird. Like that seems a little bit coerced that they all of a sudden got this at the last minute when we were negotiating and the property manager wasn't doing a very good job managing the property. So I'm like, well, I don't know why she would want to buy this property that she's kind of ran 
ran into the ground. And so that was the biggest lesson learned and the biggest challenge that I faced was having to turn back and tell everybody, Hey, I dropped the ball here. I got too aggressive. I was too excited about getting this through the process, trying to slam it through. And I left out one of the most important factors of actually getting the signed contract back. And so on this most recent acquisition, you know, I just made hundred percent sure that I had gotten all the documents. I had made sure my closing attorney had reviewed them and made sure that they're all clear and, and ready to go. And so I think that's the other part of it is great to get somebody to say yes, but until those funds go into the closing attorney's office and, and it's all ready to go, there, there are no certainties. And you know the majority of these deals, it's probably not worth getting into litigation if the seller were to, to pull out or, or do anything. And so you know that was probably the biggest challenge and lesson learned for me was just make sure that every step of the process, you're outlining and you're doing everything you can to make sure that the deal pushes to close. Thanks for sharing that. So any one advice that impacted you, John? Yeah, I think the biggest advice is do not go under contract on a, on a, at a price you cannot close at. And I think I've learned that. I've, I've had a few properties under contract here recently within the last 12 to 18 months that we just couldn't have closed at. It just wouldn't have made sense. They needed too much work. And the only way I would have been able to win on those deals would have been extreme appreciation, either rent growth or cap rate compression. And I think right now, COVID has been a really great awakening, even kind of to substantiate that point even more is if you're starting to make aggressive assumptions, the back end of this, the last four or five years, it's been, no matter how you ran a property, it's going to win. But moving forward operationally and the assumptions you make from a budgetary perspective on the front end are really going to define project success and failure. And so that would be my biggest advice to any listeners out there is if you are chasing deals and if you are looking to take down these properties on your own from an active perspective, don't get so caught up in the competition or the fact that, you know, hey, well, we need to deliver something to our investors because they're all chomping at the bit to park some capital. Really make sure that the price that you go under contract at is a price you're comfortable closing at. And then anything you get on top of that is just icing on the cake. And I think that would be the biggest advice that that I've gotten. And I haven't learned and really gleaned until recently because of some of the challenges and struggles that I've had personally. Cool. And thanks for sharing that. So any one book that impacted your life and what way? Yeah. So I, I guess I have two kind of funny story. So I, I had a customer for my W2 job that had written a book and I was never a reader before that. And so I was like, you know, well, I probably should read this book. He wrote this book. So this will give me a, a commonality to talk to him about. Uh, it was called Whiskey and Yoga. And it was a book about finding fulfillment and kind of just his journey throughout life and mindfulness. And so I read it and I was like, man, I really enjoyed that. Like, that was awesome. So, I mean, I had this kind of, you know, nefarious reasoning for, for doing that. And ever since then, I've just really dove headfirst into reading. And I just think it's so tremendous. And my wife's a little bit more on the, you know, the audiobooks. I personally, I, I just really enjoy having something in my hands and reading it. I feel like I got a lot more out of it. So I know this is kind of cliche, but I have to go back to Think and Grow Rich. I just think that book is so tremendous. And the ability, I just think the, the ability of the mind is so great. And I think that anything in life is possible if you can think it and if you can dream it. And it's just, what are you willing to sacrifice to get there? And how hard are you willing to work? And so I still have to go back to, to mindset. I think that's the most important thing to define sex, success and failure. And so I would say Think and Grow Rich would probably be the biggest book I would recommend uh, for anybody that hasn't read yet. I just think it's a must read. So how are you giving back to community, John? 
So we, that was something that has gotten more and more important to me growing up. You know, we, we grew up fairly well off and, you know, my parents did a great job donating, you know, to different, you know, causes and things of that sort. But one thing we never, we didn't do enough of was actually donating our time. And so that was something that I, I just recently joined uh, Rotary here in Durham. And so my goal this year was to attend and get out to at least six plus in-person volunteer events, kind of across the spectrum. And I wanted to involve my children in that too, because I wanted them to kind of see other aspects of society and and see the importance of actually helping others. So we were out of the gates very strong. I had done a habitat build. We had, I took my oldest daughter to uh, a food bank drive on MLK day, and we did uh, a food pantry uh, lunchbox event as well. And this was all through February. So I was really excited. I was like, oh man, we're on, like, we're on a great trajectory. Maybe I can even get to 10 for this year. And then obviously uh, COVID came around. And so now everything's been a little bit more virtual or, or financial at this point in time. But I think that's so important. And I think that's one thing that's really important to me is all the success is great and creating wealth and income and cash flow is great. But if you're not doing something for a higher purpose and really helping those around you in the community, I think that's really what I want to do this for and make sure that I leave the world in a better place than, than I found it. I've been very fortunate throughout my life. So I feel like I need to, to share that fortune with others as well. Cool. So how can listeners can connect with you, John? Yeah. I mean, the easiest way is probably LinkedIn. Find me, John Blanton, Joe Blanto on LinkedIn. Actually, I'm very excited. I'm in the process of launching a podcast, Contrarian Cashflow, The Journey to Fulfillment. And uh, other than that, you can find me at peakcapitalgrp.com and uh, happy to help in any way that I can. Awesome. Thank you, John. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Rama. Look forward to talking again soon. If you like the show, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. And if you want to connect with me, please send me a message info at ushacapital.com. Thank you for listening. Creating Wealth Through Passive Apartment Investing Podcast. I hope you learned something from the show. See you in the next episode. Thank you. Any information provided from these shows are educational purpose only. As always, please consult with your own CPA, legal and financial advisor before investing.